Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. If you didn't hear it first, uh, my name is Evan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and it truly is uh, my pleasure this morning to be able to share the gospel, the good news with us this morning to engage in this conversation that has been going on uh, since God first breathed life into existence. Uh, and so as we gather here, let us do uh, what Carrie invited us into earlier. Let us stop once again and simply remember who God is, who we are, and what is it that we're trying to do here. Let's pray. Father God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, you are a God that we know uh, has a desire to be known and to be in right relationship with us, uh, those who have been created in your image. And so we come here this morning and we bear witness to the ways that you have already revealed yourself in Scripture, in the person of Jesus, in your spirit, uh, in the sacraments and creation in your church, and we say thank you. We receive uh, your presence uh, throughout all of our life, and we confess you as good, and we confess you as Christ, Lord over all creation, which includes us. We give you thanks for the gift of grace that is the opportunity to gather here this morning, to remember who you are, a good God who loves us, to remember who we are, those who are meant to be loved by God, and to remember what it is that we're simply trying to do, live into that reality. So let us receive your grace, your mercy this morning. We pray this in Christ's name and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Our text this morning uh, is a continuation of where we've been for the last few weeks. If you haven't been with us, we are in a, uh, the beginning of a series on the book of Colossians. And this week, this Sunday, we find ourselves in uh, just a couple of short verses, chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And by way of just kicking us off and get us started, I'd love to just read these words over us. Colossians 1:21 through 23, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. What is Paul trying to do with some of this language that we see here? And the the language I'm speaking to are the words that would really emphasize a sense of place and then an an emphasis on movement. And those words, uh, as we called out in the text a little bit there, are the beginning word once, but now, and if you continue. I think what Paul is doing with the Colossians here is that he's trying to evoke in them a sense of remembering their past, becoming aware of their present, where they're at today, and to invite them to consider where their hope is placed in for the future. That's what he's doing with this language. And he's asking the question, where were you, where are you, and where are you going? Which 
if we're honest, are probably not questions that we get asked at least all together very often. I know uh, it's been a long time since anybody sat me down and said, Evan, let's talk about your past. Let's talk about where you're at right now and where you want to go. And even if they did, I don't necessarily know that at first I would receive that as good news. It feels like a really good idea, right? To maybe know where I've been, where I'm at today, and where I want to go. It feels like a really good way to live maybe a very intentional, thoughtful, full, and present life. Which if you look around uh, our landscape right now, it seems like that's what everybody is claiming, right? How to live a present life, a full life, a joy-filled life. That is what we all want. Apparently, Paul is speaking to this idea maybe of we're designed for that. And yet, if I'm honest, if somebody sat me down and asked me those questions, I'm not sure if it would feel encouraging or if it would be really, really scary and paralyzing. Because I don't, I don't know if I would know what I would say offhand. I think I would pause for a minute and say, can I get back to you on that? <laughs> And what I love about what Paul is doing here with this prayer, as Pete has established, this is a prayer for the church of Colossae. He, as a pastor, is seeing and recognizing and affirming the presence of Christ, the goodness that that brings in this body of people. And he's saying, that is it. You've got it. You're there. You've made it. Now, keep going. Just keep doing that. Don't move from there. Paul is in prison in this moment, and he's heard from afar, from a friend of the Colossian church, that this is what's happening at Colossae. And as a pastor, he goes, well done, servants of Christ. Well done. And if I'm honest, the first question that I would ask of us and, and even of myself of this, this morning is, am I the kind of pastor who sees and recognizes the presence of Christ in the midst of our church family and affirms and encourages it? I confess I don't always do a good job of that. Secondly, I would be really curious what our reputation in the midst of the surrounding area would be. Are we the kind of people that so fully embody Christ Joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, that our reputation precedes us. And there's people out and about Central Oregon and beyond that are going, hey, have you heard about that church in Bend, Oregon called Antioch? Because they're on it. They've got it. That's the moment right here. That's where we're at. Now, the question is, if, if we were asked, do you want to start with your past, your present, or talk about hope, which one would you choose? I would say, I really don't want to talk about my past. Uh, presently, I'm super tired and busy, and I really don't know where I'm at, but hope sounds great. Let's talk about hope and what we hope for. And really, I, I have to say, this is what Paul is emphasizing. Look at the language he uses at the end there when he says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That's so much encouraging, affirming, commanding language. Paul's like, hey, I know where you've been and I know where you're at, but let's talk about your hope. It's in the right place and let's keep it there. I think Paul is proposing with this emphasis and with this statement that the past is important and the present is, is really helpful to be aware of, but really what matters 
is where is our hope? What is it placed in? Or maybe better yet, who is it placed in? Because the reality that he's getting at here is he's saying that hope is what is driving and directing and motivating your behavior and your decision-making process. It's your hope. Yes, where you've been is influencing it, and yes, where you're at is shaping it, but really what you're hoping for is where you're pointing your feet. And I think we don't have to look any further than our own children uh, and the story that, that we see unfolding in a human's life as they mature. We start with really, really small hopes, right? My daughter's four right now, and her hope is to be a unicorn fairy ballerina princess. <laughs> and I say, absolutely, Emma, you go get it. Because I watched the look on her face in that moment. She's so happy and so joyful, wearing fairy wings and a unicorn horn and a magic wand and twirling around, and it's just like, oh, I don't want to do anything else other than watch you hope for that because it's beautiful. And when she invites me into that story, I say, oh yeah, I'll be a unicorn fairy ballerina princess with you because that sounds amazing. It looks fun. Let's do that. And then I wonder if in her mind, if she turns to me in that moment and thinks just for a second, dad, do you really hope so? I'd like to say, yes, I do. I hope so. And then we, we mature a little bit and we grow up and all of the hormones and the testosterone start taking over and we go, hey, do you guys want to go out to the lake and jump off a bridge? <laughs> and we go, yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's go do that. And usually there's someone in the back that's going, I don't know. You think that's going to work? <laughs> and the leader at the front, of course, says, yeah, I hope so. And then we graduate to the next hope, the bigger hope. We become adults who have an ambition for a career. We have an education now. We have something we're trying to build and create and prove in the world, right? And so that we say, you know what? I got an idea. I'm going to start a business. <laughs> and we say, great. What do you got? Well, I got this really great vision and a couple of dollars. What do you think? Are you in? And what is it about us, especially those who have money, right? Like the angel investors that look down on that person and they go, yeah, I'll put my hope in that. A dream and a dollar, that'll work. And we do it. We see it everywhere. It's why new businesses are continually being born and creating and then flourishing and growing up because we long to put our hope in something. And then we get to one of the really big ones where we look at someone across from us and we go, hey, do you want to get married? and have some kids? <laughs> Which is a super vulnerable question, right? Super vulnerable, because they could say, not really. <laughs> Thankfully, my wife said yes. And now we're married and we have children and it's a joy. But in that moment, I was screaming with everything in me as I proposed, say yes to this. Please, for my sake. And she said, yes, that sounds fun. And then I thought, do you think this is going to work? <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, in this prayer, is affirming that they're hoping first. And secondly, he's affirming that their hope is rightly placed in the greatest hope. 
the ultimate hope, the hope held out in the gospel. And he's saying, don't move. Don't move. So if this is true, then I have three questions I want to ask of Paul this morning. I want to ask first, what is this hope that's held out in the gospel? Then I want to ask, yeah, but how can we know if it's really true? Because I'm a big fan of truth and knowing what's right and doing smart, intelligent, logical things. So is this true? And then finally, I want to know, why should I place my hope in that truth? That's why we're here this morning, is it not? As the body of Christ gathered together to question that, to doubt that maybe in a very righteous way to go, God, are you really God? Is this really where we should place our hope? Let's talk about that for a while as a group and call it a sermon. Is this really the best hope? And I think Paul is reminding them and saying, absolutely, don't move. You've got it. So the hope held out in the gospel, what is that? That's a really, sounds like a really interesting idea, maybe even one I might give myself to, but let's talk about what that is for a minute. And what's beautiful is Paul just got done laying this out in the previous five verses. And I know we talked about it last week, but I really can't summarize the gospel better than Paul, and I'm not even going to try. So let's just hear it once more this morning. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his shed blood on the cross. I'm gonna sum that up just with our sermon title. Like if I had to sum, if I really sat me down and said, Evan, summarize that for me, I would say, Christ is all. Full stop. Christ is all. The invitation of this gospel, the hope that Paul is planting in us here is that we actually can know the God who created everything and what he's like if we're willing to sit and know Christ. All of creation, Paul is saying all of creation, globally, historically, and still to come, looks to Christ for an understanding and a hope of our past, present, and our future. And finally, the hope held out in the gospel is that something separated everything from Christ but he took care of it through his shed blood on the cross. And we are reconciled, restored to right relationship with God. This is the hope that Paul has heard about in the church of the Colossians, and he's affirming and encouraging it. This is the hope held out in the gospel. So the second question is, how can we know if this is actually true? I love how Paul starts verse 21. He says, once. What do you think of? Anyone? 
Fairy tales, yes. We're having a conversation, this is good. Fairy tales, Disney, Walt, the man, the myth, the legend who created it all once upon a time. Boom, images conjured up. And they invite us to look back to a moment. And in that moment, things are pretty good. And then things usually turn a little bit bad because of the presence of evil. But then love usually shows up in the picture and conquers it. And then it gets even better. What Paul is inviting us to consider with this once statement is for the Colossians to look back. And the temptation first is, I think, to look back at ourselves, at our own story. But I actually think his gospel message here is look to Christ. Look to Christ. And so we look to Christ in the past. What was he like? What did he offer? And what did he claim? Well, at first he was like a really vulnerable baby born in a manger in a small town called Bethlehem. That's what he was like in the beginning. That's what the story tells us. He was born of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit and then grew into being a good man. I don't know many people that would say Jesus wasn't a good man. What did he offer? He offered helpful teachings. If you do these things, life will go well with you. He also offered miracles, like really good wine and lots of it, and a whole lot of bread and fish and opportunities to sit and eat at tables. He also offered eternal life. There's that. (laughs) What did he claim? Well, he claimed to be the son of God, the Christ, God incarnate, come in the flesh, father, son, and spirit to be the fullness of God with humanity, to give himself to us fully. Now, here's the crux of that is that really the person of Christ is forcing us to make a decision about his character here. And really C.S. Lewis captures it best when he says either Jesus was a liar or he was a lunatic, or he was actually the son of God. But you can't really believe that he's the son of God if you don't agree with what he said, you don't agree with his teachings. And you can't really think he's a good man if he claims to be the son of God and isn't it. A friend was telling me about a movie that came out recently called The Three Christs, and it's these three guys who are a little bit deranged in the mind and each one of them thinks they're the person of Jesus. And the psychologist comes together around him and says, you know what, let's believe him. See what happens. So he puts them in a room and has them just kind of start figuring it out and talking to each other and the psychologist continues to believe them. I'm not gonna tell you the end of the story because it's a new movie and you really should go watch it. It's pretty good, I've heard. But The reality is there is we would look at those men and we'd go, well, they can't be Christ because there's three of them and they're in the same room and they all seem a little bit out there. That's what Jesus is forcing us to do with him. Either he's a liar, a lunatic, or he's actually the son of God. C.S. Lewis says it like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I'm not going to try to prove that to you. Here's my invitation. I'm going to invite you to actually give yourselves to the idea of knowing Christ through the ways that he's invited us to, through reading scripture, through prayer, through life of the church, through recognizing the presence of the Holy Spirit, through the way creation is revealing the nature of God. I'm gonna invite you to know Christ through all of those ways. And you take as long as you think it needs to really get to know somebody to the point that you can trust them and then you come back and you tell me. Deal? Or not. So we look at Christ's past. The second invitation is to actually then turn and look into our own past, which is what the Colossians are being invited to do through this letter from Paul, through this prayer. The question, what were we like before Christ? Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior. Once you were alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Is that really true? Again, I can't prove it to you. All I'm gonna do is offer you a glimpse into my own story. And here's the reality. We have a four-year-old daughter, unicorn fairy, ballerina princess. We also have uh, about a 15-month-old son, Wyatt. Not sure what he's hoping for yet. Um, he really likes food. But here's the reality. Currently, Wyatt's struggling with sleep. He likes to wake up multiple times a night and cry and be reassured that we love him and whatnot. And then his favorite, favorite, favorite wake-up time for the day, Wyatt thinks it's best to start at 4 o'clock. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> And so here's the reality. As I hear Wyatt crying in the other room, these are the two lived experiences that I've had in the last 15 months. This is the truth. The first experience is that when I realize Christ is with me and in me and through me and for me and all that that means, that my hope is in him, it's a miracle if this happens when I wake up at four. But if that happens to happen, here's, here's what happens is I happily hop out of bed immediately when I hear him cry because I can't wait to go to him and comfort him and affirm him and say, Daddy's here. I love you. And then I go and I grab him and I set him on the counter and I heat up a bottle of milk for him and he hungrily grabs it and he's so excited for it, Right? And then I turn around and I grind some coffee and I get the water going because I desperately need coffee. 
But I also know that my wife loves coffee. And she would really love it if when she woke up, I could just put the cup in her hand. You don't have to wait for it. And then I sit there with Wyatt, holding him, bottle in hand, sitting in his room in a rocking chair, and together we greet the day. And I'm full of joy, and it's amazing. Option two, and honestly, the more common one. Wyatt cries. I lay there and pretend that I don't hear it. I do. And then Lindsay leans over and she goes, hey, babe, would you mind getting up with Wyatt, getting him a bottle? And I'm already pissed. How dare you ask me to do that? Do you not realize everything I do for you? You're going to ask me for this? Do you know what my day is like? And so I say, yeah, fine, I'll get up. And I do. And I bang a pot out of the drawer and I heat up the milk. Maybe I put my finger in it to see if it's too hot or not. (laughs) And I go into Wyatt's room, pissed at him because he's the reason I'm awake. What are you doing? Why can't you just sleep? I'm so tired. So I pick him up. I try not to shake him. And I sit him down, and I jam a bottle into his mouth. Forget the coffee. It's not even on the radar. Lindsay gets up and goes, how's it going? Yeah, it's fine. I told you. It's fine. And that's not the bad part. Here's where it gets really ugly. I say fine, and I mean it. Because what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play a game. And we're going to take that anger and that resentment that was born in that moment when I thought this world is all about my pleasure and my happiness and my satisfaction and my sleep. I start finding reasons to feed it. I give it little nibbles here and there. I start counting the ways that I am doing such a better job of loving my wife than she is of loving me. And I look around at all my friends and I go, dude, I am the best husband in the world. Why is she not worshiping me? That's what I think. Last week, that's what I was thinking. And then here's the really sad part is the resentment breeds anger. The anger breeds wrath. And you know who gets my vengeance? Emma has the audacity to ask me for a glass of milk. And I explode in rage. Do you have any idea how good of a father I am to you? How dare you ask me for a glass of milk? I hate that man. Lord, crucify that man. That's who I am when I fail to realize that I am a child of God who has been reconciled to Christ and can receive that here and now in this moment. 
Without Christ, I literally become an enemy of God. And a lot of it's in my mind. And the behavior is evil. It's evil. The best picture I have is Gollum in Lord of the Rings. My life is my precious. And I am all consumed with it. And I worship it. And I pet it. And I tell it all the reasons I love it. And I do everything I can to protect it and defend it. Even if that means I have to murder my best friend. Thankfully, it hasn't come to that. Lord, have mercy. If I'm actually able to recognize and live into the reality that Christ is with me, I become an extension of his love, his grace, his gentleness, his kindness, his mercy. And you know what? I want Christ to be the husband to my wife and the father and my children and the friend to you all. Because I'm not very good. Christ in me. That's the only hope. Christ in me. Now, here's the reality. This is just my experience. It could be a lie. For those who know me well, you know it's not. And I'm not going to try to prove it to you. I'm simply going to ask you this question. Consider what your behavior is like when you are recognizing and receiving the presence of Christ versus not. It's a question for you. So I think we can know if it's true if we're willing to look into Christ and his past and who he is and was and claims to be. And I also think it's true if we're willing to look into our own past and our own selves and realize that before Christ and without Christ, I have no hope. So the last question seems a little bit illogical, but we're actually going to ask it. Why should we place our hope in this gospel? Why should we place our hope in Christ? Paul is inviting us to consider the present moment, to look at who Christ is today. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I don't claim to know the full scope of what holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation means. I think we can try to capture metaphors and analogies and ideas that would speak to that. But really where I want to lean into and zoom in on is that we were reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. And that he did it to present us holy without blemish, free from accusation. Christ's body didn't stop at death. He went through it. For our sake, for your sake. He went through it into the resurrection. And the story continues to go on to say that, and then Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And his promise, the promise of Christ, is to return one day to make everything new, past, present, and future, and invite us into that reality. We see this story unfold in the road to Emmaus when Jesus actually rises from the grave and he starts walking and talking with his disciples who don't recognize him. And he says, why are you so sad? And they're like, well, Jesus died. And he's like, really? And he keeps walking and then they give him an invitation to dinner. And he accepts because he was gonna just keep going, but he turns and goes and has dinner with them. And he sits down 
And he does what Jesus always did at dinner. He grabbed the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to him. And they went, oh, we know who you are. Hi, Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave in the flesh. He went through death into resurrection and was resurrected in bodily form, was recognizable by the disciples, and then appeared to over 500 people and then in public ascended to heaven. I don't know what that means, but that's what people say. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 14, Paul puts it like this, talking about the resurrection. He goes, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been praised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul's saying that if Christ was raised from the dead in the flesh, then we can hope to be as well if we place our hope in Christ. That's the invitation. And he did this to present us, us, you and me, and anyone that would claim Christ holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. That's why he went to the cross. We are his. He claims us. We are created to be with him, and he's inviting us to place our hope in him because he has done the work to give hope to our past, the damage and death we've caused, our current circumstances, and our future hope. That's where Christ is, is in the present, seated at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us, praying for us. Second, we look to our present. The question, how is it going? Right, we're busy, we're tired, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed, some of us are happy. I talked with John in the break, John's happy, he's good, he said God is good, I agree. So how's it going? What, what are we hoping in? What is our happiness and our tiredness and our exhaustion, all of that actually being gauged by? And here's the reality is that most of us came in here today with a hope, whether we recognized it or not. Maybe the hope was for fresh snow and a powder day. It's not a bad one. My hope is that Wyatt sleeps. <laughs> Some of you are hoping that you land the job. Some of you are hoping in retirement. Some of you are hoping that she says yes. Some of you are hoping this would be a really short sermon. I'm sorry. <laughs> Honestly, none of these are bad hopes. They're good hopes. They're simply just short-sighted. And the reality is, is that we don't do a good job of coming up with good hopes on our own. We need someone to give us one. And Jesus said, I gave you not just a hope, but I gave you myself. We place our hope in Christ because he has given us himself in the fullness of the presence of God in the flesh and the spirit, the one in whom, by whom, and for whom all things were created and have been reconciled through his physical death and resurrection. That's our hope. A powder day is great. Wyatt sleeping is great. But that, that is a hope that I believe we can all get on board with. Jesus is saying, I've taken care of all of it, past, present, and that which is still to come. Just trust me. Know me. Place your hope in me. The reality is this is a mystery, right? Future, resurrection, hope. We don't really know. We hope. But I think Jesus says, if you place your hope in Christ, then ask for anything. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I came across this really beautiful glimpse 
from Thomas Dabney, a theologian from 100 years ago or so. And, and this is his hope according to his idea of the resurrection. He says this, and in raising our mortal body, God will redeem not just that body, the locus of our existence, but the entirety of our embodied life. The whole of our relationships, our experiences, and our encounters, and all that makes up our identity. What would it mean to have all our broken relationships with God and world and our fellow human beings rectified and made whole? The hope Christ gives us does not just include present circumstances or even past, but includes the future, the global, the historical, and everything and everyone that has been created because it's in Christ. Christ is all. That's the really, really good news that we see in verse 23 that we get to. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It's the gospel that's proclaimed to all of creation, that creation is telling, right? We see it in the forest. A tree grows, it produces fruit, fruit falls, seed dies into the earth, and new life is born, and pretty soon you have a forest. Compost, you take a bunch of things that were alive and you put them in a pile, now that they're dead, and then you just wait for a while. And through sunlight and moisture and time, all of a sudden you have new life, and you have soil that is teeming with life, and you put that back into the ground, and it makes things grow even more. Disney, Walt, once upon a time, things were good, then it got bad, then it got really good. The stories we love to tell. The stories we can't help but tell. We long for a hope greater than that which we can create on our own, so we reach for it elsewhere. And Jesus is saying, I know you're going to do that. Reach for me. But there's this really scary word in there. And it's the shortest and smallest one of all, and it says, if. If you continue. Again. I'm not going to claim to know what that means or try to prove it to you, but I'm going to say this. The entirety of the Christian faith is about one thing and one thing only, learning to recognize and receive the presence of Christ in all things. Paul claims we have a choice, and with that choice, there comes all kinds of questions and what-ifs and scenarios. But the question this morning that I'm going to ask is this. In light of what we've heard, in light of what we came here already knowing, in light of the history of the church and the created world that we live in, the stories that we're immersed in. Does the if really matter? Or do you not want to just give yourself to Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and claims to have our past, present, and future? I'm not going to speak for you, but I know I do. And so the last question, real simple, how do we do that? He's already given it to us. Know his story. Spend time with him in his story. Talk with him about it. Understand who he is, what he's like. We've done that this morning. This is what it's like to experience God's word. And the invitation is keep doing it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Start with five minutes and grow it. Prayer. Receive it here this morning. After this, we're going to have some folks down front come forward and receive prayer. Why? Because the presence of spirit is mediating that. And Christ is with us and in us and for us. So pray this morning. And then pray tomorrow. Pray the prayer he gave us, the Lord's Prayer. 
If you don't know it, memorize it, pray it. Morning, noon, and night, see what happens. Finally, the sacraments, the table, the very body and blood of Christ that we are invited to eat and consume, that in doing so, new life might be resurrected in us as we remember him. So come and do that this morning, and to do that every time you eat. Remember that what you were eating had life. It required death, and it's being resurrected in you as new life. The body and blood of Christ is available always. Here's what I think will happen if we're willing to give ourselves to that hope and to those practices and that process. I think that by first being recipients, we eventually become active participants as we are filled with the presence of Christ and the fullness of God. We become Christ-like, Christian. Let's pray. Father, you've given us your word. We've received it. And now the invitation to us is to respond. So help us to respond. Give us courage. Help us to be willing to be vulnerable. Ultimately, help us to know and recognize your presence among us, to receive that and to extend it in love to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your Holy Spirit.